Our scripture reading is from 1 Kings 17, 8 through 12. This can be found on page 299 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one as a gift from us. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. This is the word of the Lord. Indus, and I am one of the pastors here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community, and I'll add my welcome uh, to Shelley's this morning. I also wanted to mention uh, we are starting something new this month. On the first Sunday of the month, we'll have in the back, in between the coffee table and this kind of pew that sits in the back right, a volunteer interest table, uh, particularly for our host teams. So if you drank coffee this morning, you are the beneficiary of the good work uh, of one of our host teams, and we have a number of those parking, uh, greeters, the folks that hand out notes sheets, and we're always looking for people to get involved, and we wanted to make it easier for you to get involved uh, in one of those teams if you're interested. So that'll be the first Sunday of each month, and there'll be someone back there after service who can answer any questions you might have or get you plugged into one of those teams. Well, before we dive in and, and study the passage that um, Shelley just read for us, I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer uh, that God might speak through me today. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for the book of First Kings, uh, thousands of years old, but still relevant today in 21st century Kansas City. Um, I pray, Lord, that I would diminish and you would increase as we study what it is that you might have for us um, out of this passage this morning. In the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, let me read for us again just one verse from the passage that Shelley read for us just a moment ago. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 12. And the widow said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Take a moment and try to imagine yourself as that widow. Not only is she a single parent, which I'm convinced is one of the most difficult situations possible, but she's a single parent by virtue of incredible loss. The story tells us that she is a widow. Her husband is dead. And, and her situation, a single parent whose spouse has died, that's a challenge no matter the time or culture. But when and where this woman lived, it, it made it nearly hopeless she lived in the ancient Near East 2,700 years ago. This was a culture that was particularly even more so difficult for women. And if you had been married before, then your prospects for remarriage, which was one of the only ways to sustain you and your household, were virtually zero. So she's vulnerable because she's a widow and has been previously married. But she's also vulnerable because 
in all likelihood, she's extremely poor. Uh, Verse 10 of our passage, it says that she was gathering up the sticks to make this fire so that she could bake this bread for her and her son. You could buy firewood in her day, and it was very affordable. This is cluing us into her socioeconomic status. So she's not just vulnerable because she's a widow. She's vulnerable because she is living in extreme poverty. But even that doesn't paint the full picture because you see in normal circumstances, this woman and her son, they would have lived a very challenging life, but they would have lived, not died, but, but that's what's happening here. In verse 12, she says to Elijah, I'm making our final meal. We're going to die. The widow and her son are at death's door because the times they are living in are anything but normal. There is a global drought and famine happening which has brought about this woman's imminent destruction. And the character at the other end of this conversation, the person she's talking to, Elijah, he's the reason why. Now, if you missed last Sunday, you might be a little bit confused. Wait a second, what vice are we studying again? We finished our Vices and Virtues series on Father's Day, and last week we launched into a new teaching series called With Us. With Us. It's a series contained in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, examining the global conflict between God's prophet Elijah and the evil king of God's people, Ahab. And last Sunday, Bill began our series by setting the historical stage. And he did an incredible job with a difficult task. It's not easy to drop into the middle of 1 Kings and readily understand what's happening. If you missed that sermon, I'd highly recommend finding it on our website or downloading it in our podcast feed. You can also go to our Facebook page to watch a really amazing video that outlines the whole book of 1 Kings. And I've already mentioned this morning the two main characters of these chapters in 1 Kings, Elijah and Ahab. Ahab, as Bill covered last week, was the king of Israel, and he was the absolute worst. And that's really not hyperbole either. He literally was the worst. During this period in Israel's history of about 250 years, they had 20 kings, And their batting average was zero. None of them were good. They went 0 for 20. They would have been demoted to AAA so fast you couldn't even blink. And of these 20 horrible kings that did not honor God in any way, the Bible tells us that without a doubt, Ahab was the worst. He was literally the worst. So during this time, as a countermeasure to these horrendous leaders that were at the helm of his people, God, he raised up true and righteous prophets. Prophets who served as God's communicators. These prophets delivered God's message to God's disobedient people. And they spoke and preached of both God's coming judgment for sin and disobedience, but also they spoke and preached of God's available salvation that would come if his people were just to confess and repent. Prophets were not fortune tellers. They were traveling preachers who carried with them and spoke a very hard and often offensive message. And one of the great prophets of the day is Elijah. And he bursts onto the scene in our Bibles at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 17. Verse 1, which introduces him, reads this way. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, and I love this introduction because he just bursts onto the scene and automatically he's in a meeting with the king. 
He's in a meeting with the king, and he's speaking directly to Ahab, and he says this. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He stands before the king of Israel, and he says, I'm turning the faucet off. By the word of the Lord, there will not be dew, there will not be rain, there is going to be a drought. And listen, drought's a big deal no matter where you live or are from in the world. Rain is necessary, but this showdown is taking place in the desert. There's barely any water there to begin with, and now Elijah says, by the word of the Lord, I'm turning the faucet out. This is God's judgment. This is God's judgment on Ahab's evil leading of God's people. And God's judgment coming through Elijah in the form of the drought, this is not a coincidence. It's not as though God just kind of spun his wheel of judgment and it landed on drought. This is incredibly intentional. You see, one of the reasons why Ahab was such an evil king was his choice of wife, Jezebel. Jezebel wasn't an Israelite, but she was the princess of the king of the Sidonians. She's the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, who were a neighboring people group to Israel. So this, this marriage between Ahab and Jezebel, this is a political marriage through and through. And from that standpoint, it makes sense. Israel now has one less neighboring country, neighboring people group to worry about attacking them because they're united by marriage. But from a spiritual perspective, this marriage is an utter disaster. Because you see what is supposed to be true about God's people 2,700 years ago and what is supposed to be true about God's people today is that we and them, us, God's people, worship one God and one God alone. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who the Bible tells us his personal name is Yahweh. Yahweh. That is supposed to be true about God's people. It's the first command that God gives his people when he hands them how to live. He says, you shall worship no other gods before me. Worship me alone. Singular worship of Yahweh is at the very core of what it means to be God's people. But we've always had trouble following this command. We as God's people are always tempted to go chase after little g-gods. And this was no different during the time of Ahab. It's why Jezebel is so dangerous because you see her people, the Sidonians, they worship many gods, not one, many. And above all, they worship the god Baal. Now, Bill covered this more in depth last week, but basically Baal was the storm god. So the thought was for the region, for the desert, to have any vitality, to have any fertility, Baal had to be pleased with them. If he was pleased, then it would rain and there would be life. So he became kind of the, the, the first among many gods for the Sidonians and other people groups who became obsessed with pleasing Baal. So this drought that Elijah is predicting, it's not... It's not coincidental at all. This is a showdown between Elijah and then Ahab and Jezebel, but at a much higher level, this is a showdown between Yahweh and Baal. Whose God can bring life? Whose God can bring and hold back the rain? It's a showdown at the highest of levels between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Baal, the God of everyone else in the region. And spoiler alert here, Yahweh wins. The one true God wins. In a climate where rain so directly brought life, what we learn from these stories in 1 Kings is that only God can bring life. 
Only Yahweh, only the God of Israel, only the one true God can bring life. And only God can hold life back as well. And and again, we see this in the text, evidenced by the fact that the drought begins. Elijah said it, God did it. The drought begins. He can give and, and he can hold back life from the region. There's no rain. But God provides for his prophet Elijah by sending him to one lonely stream in the desert. It's not the Hilton, but there is room service. The ravens bring him food in the morning and in the evenings. But then the stream stops running, it's gone. And so now Elijah's in it deep because he can't ask anyone for help. Ahab is convinced, and I think rightly so, that if he kills Elijah, then the drought's going to end. So he's got search parties going door to door looking for Elijah all around the country. And this is where Elijah is at the beginning of our passage this morning in 1 Kings. He's out of water. He's out of food. The ravens have stopped coming. Elijah is out of options. And this has to be so confusing for him, I think. Because he's doing all of this to serve God, right? Israel is just happily worshiping Baal. They've been led astray by Ahab and Jezebel. They're chasing after gods other than Yahweh. And Elijah's the only one who's trying to do anything about it. He's trying to show that only God, not Baal, is the Lord. He's trying to show that only God can bring life. Elijah is faithfully calling the people back to true religion. But then he runs out of water? He runs out of food? Is he going to die here in the desert? I mean, think of the irony of that. He's trying to prove that only God can bring life. Is he going to give up his life on that quest? No. He won't because God has a plan. Verse 8 of our passage this morning reads this way. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So it's a plan. God's got a plan for him. But Elijah probably thinks it's not a very good one. Because remember, Ahab's wife Jezebel is from Sidon. This is Baal's backyard. It's the absolute last place that Elijah would have picked to go to receive help. Which is exactly the point. You see, there was a territorial belief about gods during this time. So sure, maybe the God of Israel can cause a drought in Israel. That's his territory. That's where he has power. But there's no way that this drought would extend to Sidon. There's no way that it would extend to Baal's territory. But it did. That's the point of this story. The thought would be that there's no way that Yahweh would have power and authority in Sidon, but he does. What we see from this story in 1 Kings 17 is that this is not just an Israel drought. This is a global drought and famine affecting the whole world. And the story of the widow here in 1 Kings 17 is fascinating because it zooms in so intimately on the impacts of this drought. We were just on this global stage with this meeting between the king of God's people who is acting evilly, Ahab, and God's prophet who is trying to do the right thing and preach a true message. It's this global scale. And then we zoom in 
on the Sidonian woman who is gathering sticks for her and her son's final meal. And the point, and it makes it so powerfully, the text does, the point is, this is what happens when the rain is gone. This is what happens when the rain is gone. It's a crushing picture of the harsh realities of drought in the desert. But what happens when the God who brings life shows up? What happens when a prophet carrying God's true message shows up? Verses 13 and 14. These are right after the widow's declaration of her coming death. Elijah says to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And we can't be totally sure if the widow wholeheartedly believes Elijah at this point. I I don't think I would have. But what does she have to lose? The drought and famine is literally starving off the entire region. Why not share a meal with this crazy guy? So verse 15, she went and she did as Elijah said, obedience to the word of the Lord, obedience to God. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And this is incredible, incredible provision, incredible life. God honors the woman's faith. He honors her obedience. And I imagine for the widow, I imagine that she begins to see that only God, only Yahweh, not Baal, can truly provide for her. I imagine that she's beginning to see that God's power, even in Baal's backyard, is insurmountable. That God and God alone can provide life that God breaks through boundaries no matter how big. And it's interesting to think about Elijah in this moment because Elijah didn't need to be convinced that God can provide life. Remember, ravens brought him breakfast and dinner. God has provided for him. But it's like Elijah needed to see with his own eyes that God gives life even in enemy territory. God brings life even to outsiders, ethnic outsiders, religious outsiders, socioeconomic outsiders, social outsiders. That's who this woman was to Elijah. And I wonder if when God told him to go to a widow in Sidon, I wonder if he thought, wait a minute, aren't there widows in Israel that could sustain me and I could sojourn with? And God's like, yeah, of course, but no, get out. You need to learn a lesson. The lesson that not only does God's power have zero bounds, but that God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy also have zero bounds. God breaks through even to Israel's enemies, even to the pagan widow. He provides and brings life. And so, yes, it's true that this pagan widow needed God's prophet to see that God alone brings life. But flip it around because it's true, it's equally true that God's prophet, God's prophet needed the pagan widow to sing that God brings life to whomever he wants. And that's the main point of this first part of our story. God brings life to whomever he wants. Only God can bring life. 
to whomever he wants. God is teaching Elijah a vital lesson, one that we shouldn't miss. With his provision to this widow and her household, God is saying, I'm bigger than you realize. My mission is much grander than you think. My plan knows no bounds. I can and will bring life to whomever I please. And God's not done either. Because you see, after a little while, the widow's son tragically becomes very sick. That's verse 17 of our passage. The boy becomes so sick that he breathes his last, dead, just like his father, gone. His mother, wife to a dead husband and now mother to a dead son, she picks him up in her arms and she brings him to Elijah. He had to have been a little boy, young, because she's able to carry him. And she carries him to to this, who she thought was a man of God. She carries him to Elijah and she basically accuses him. She says in verse 18, What have you against me, O man of God? You can hear the sarcasm or anger in her voice. You have come to bring to me. Have you come to bring to me my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? She's saying, I thought you and your God came to bring blessing, to bring life, but now I see that you were sent here to punish me for my sin. This is all some sick joke. Your God kept us alive just long enough to kill my son right in front of me. She's confused beyond belief, and Elijah is too. He takes the boy and he races up to his room. He lays the boy on his bed and he cries out in anguish to God. Verse 20, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And I'm right with Elijah in this complaint. It seems like such an upside down moment, almost like it reverses God's earlier point about life and provision no matter the boundary lines like a really twisted, the most twisted gotcha moment possible. So Elijah refuses to believe it's the plan. He stretches himself out on the boy and he cries out to the Lord again. Verse 21, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. What a prayer that is. What audacity, what bold faith. How big does Elijah think his God is? Big enough to pull life out of death, I suppose. And astonishingly, God hears. God answers. The life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Revived or resurrected. From death to life, right there in Elijah's upper room, the first recorded resurrection in the Bible. Elijah carries the boy back down to the anguished mother and he delivers the ultimate punchline to this moment. See, your son lives. Can you imagine that scene? And the mother's response, it distills the point of the whole passage and really it distills the point of this whole series with us. She says in verse 24, Now I know... Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now I know. She's saying that something's different. Before, with the flour and oil, that was nice, helpful, necessary. But now I know that you speak for the living God, for the one true God. 
Like we saw before, only God can bring life to whomever he wants. To provide the flour and the oil to this widow and her son, God had crossed all sorts of boundaries. Religious boundaries, cultural boundaries, ethnic boundaries, even metaphysical boundaries. By making the flour and oil multiply day after day after day, God crossed a metaphysical boundary. But for this woman to know that God is God and there is no other, there was one more boundary that God had to cross. The boundary between life and death. When she saw God raise her son from the dead, she knew in the core of her being, Yahweh is God and he is with me, not Baal, not Asherah, not any of the other gods that the Sidonians worshipped, Yahweh, the only God who can bring life, even out of death. And that's the main point of this second part of the story. Only God, only Yahweh can bring life even out of death, even out of death. And there's this interesting line from the widow. Maybe you noticed it. Back in verse 18 and her accusation against Elijah, she references her sin. She points to her rebellion against God. She asks, did you only come to remind me that I am a sinner? It seems like she understood that if you sin against God, the payment is life. And Elijah seems to to know this too. I think that's why he physically stretches out over the boy. That's That's such an odd move, but it communicates something quite powerful, almost as if Elijah is saying, God, take my breath, my life, and put it into the boy. If a life must be taken, take mine, not his. And miraculously, God hears him. The boy lives. But interestingly, God does not take either life. Why? If a life must be taken for the sin of the woman, as everyone seems to assume, why is neither life taken? And God's answer through the story is this. The boy's life cannot pay for sin. And Elijah, your life cannot save the boy. But, God says, my life can. You see, there's another life on the line. There's another stretching to come. There's another son who has to die. Roughly 700 years after this story in 1 Kings, God will send someone else into enemy territory, not just his prophet, but his one and only son, his beloved son, to a people that do not know him or do not want him. And God's son, Jesus, stretches his life over theirs and he will raise them from the dead. God's life for theirs. God's life for yours. Because you see, this is where the story turns to us right now. Are you beginning to see that only God, only Yahweh can bring life? Do you see God loving the outsider? Are you beginning to understand That the boundaries of this world, boundaries like race, religion, zip codes, east or west of truce, these boundaries are nothing to God. They're nothing to him. So let me ask, what are boundaries to you, to us? Are we going to uncomfortable places and conversations to bring the God who brings life? Will we go where he sends us? Is God bringing life through, through us to others? 
Or maybe you're more like the widow here, unsure of whether God exists, and if he does, whether he's worth following at all. But are you beginning to see that God promises life in a way that's different, in a way that nobody else can? What God do you worship now? What do you hope in and trust in now? What comforts you in the face of death? What motivates you to work hard and be a moral person? And when that thing comes to mind, you should ask yourself, does the God I worship today defeat death? Does the God I worship today defeat death? Does he, she, or it bring a resurrection? Because that's what all of this boils down to, isn't it? What good is your God? What good is any God, for that matter, if he, she, or it does not defeat death? Death is the great and final enemy. It's something we have been obsessed with beating for eternity as humans. And if your God, my God, doesn't defeat death, then what's the point? But this is our great and ultimate hope as Christians, that our God, that Jesus Christ did defeat death. That is what we cling to in moments of good and moments of bad. That above it all, Jesus was not held in by the grave. That, as the great hymn in Christ alone reads, there in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Jesus, our God, dead, but then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. I know in my own life, I daily am tempted to turn to other gods, to give myself, to surrender myself, to commit myself to lesser things. And so I am so grateful. That fact is why I am so grateful for stories like this one in 1 Kings, stories that lead me to say, like the widow said, now I know, now I know that God is truth and he alone brings life. Stories that lead me to remember that only God can bring life to whomever he wants and even out of death. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, author of life, thank you for bringing life through your son Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would not chase after lesser gods but that we would instead give ourselves wholly and fully to you through your son, Jesus. And I pray, Father, that we would, like you do, bend towards the outsider, that we would see that boundaries are nothing to you, Lord, and that we ought to go and bring life with us. Amen.